If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to I Am Are You Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974, striving each week to amplify the voices of the LGBTQIA2S plus communities. I'm Michael Taylor Gray in Los Angeles. Oprah Winfrey once said, lots of people want to ride with you in the limo, but what you want is someone who will take the bus with you when the limo breaks down. Tonight... We look at a few couples who took that bus, even had a lifetime bus pass, starting with Chris and Dawn, A Love Story, from 2008, was a documentary chronicling the epic love story of portrait artist Don Picardi and legendary writer Christopher Isherwood. Playing a hunch, Steve Pride found Picardi in the phone book. What good is sitting alone in your room? Come hear the music play. Life is a cabaret. Old the film Cabaret was based on the adventures of Christopher Escherwood, as chronicled in his Berlin stories. So in the sequel, I suppose we'd learn our hero left Sally Bowles and Berlin for sunny Santa Monica, where he lived until his death in 1986 with writer-artist-activist Don Bacardi. Maybe you just don't sleep with girls. Oh, you don't. Well, listen, we're practically living together. So if you only like boys, I mean, I wouldn't dream of pestering you. Well, do you sleep with girls or don't you? Sally, you don't ask questions like that. I do. Tell me about Christopher Isherwood. What was he like? Oh, he's the most charming man I ever met. What was uh, wonderful about him was his genuine curiosity about people. He wasn't faking it. When we met, he asked me all kinds of questions about myself. Until I met him, I'd never known anybody to take such an interest in me. And he was particularly interested in young people and young men in particular. And he wanted to know what their lives were like, what it was like to be them, what they were interested in. And you can always tell when somebody asks you questions, whether they're just making conversation, whether it's just idle curiosity, or whether it's the genuine article. And his was genuine. What was the gay side of Hollywood like in the 50s? Oh, there were clubs and bars, and of course they were very dangerous because they could be raided at any moment, and often were. And um, 
a certain bar would emerge and be very popular and people would flock to it. But most of the bars lasted only a very short while because uh, they were soon raided. And once they got a reputation for being raided regularly, they, they couldn't last. But uh, while they did last, they were very exciting because it was dangerous and, and everybody who was there knew that uh, maybe that night uh, the place would be raided and they might even be arrested. So that gave uh, the experience uh, a very decided edge. You're quoted in a book on gay widowers by Eric Guitares as saying that after the death of Isherwood, you transformed yourself and underwent a complete role reversal in the relationship that followed. Yes, well, it was a very peculiar experience for me. First of all, reaching the age uh, that Chris was when I first met him. Of course, he seemed so much older and he was distinguished and from another generation, uh, another country. And suddenly, I found myself the very age he was when I met him, and that was very significant. And he was still alive then. And then after his death... I found myself gradually being put into the position of being the older one of a couple. I met a young man, fell in love with him, who who was 26 years younger than I was. And I suddenly found myself cast in Chris's role. And it was very illuminating for me because it gave me all sorts of insights into situations that I'd experienced with Chris and I suddenly for the first time began to understand how he must have felt all those years before with me and uh, so it was a continual kind of communication with him because I was understanding aspects of his experience uh, 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 really for the first time and also his example was very helpful to me because often when I had problems with my friend, I would ask myself, how would Chris behave in this situation? And you know, I always got an answer. And it was often very, very helpful to me asking Chris's uh, advice. Dark and cold was the night you came. I told you to go, but you stayed anyway. You held your finger to my trembling lips. You said, come in close, kid. I won't let you slip. Hush, little babe, hush, little babe It's your favorite song Stop all this bossing, boy There's nothing wrong Cool and swift like a bird We flew into the sun Into the blue That's how I know I can love I can love I can love and be Chris and Dawn is available to stream on Amazon Prime and rent on Apple TV. By now, you've heard the tired old adage, it's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. But that's doubly fake news when the name of the movie is Adam and Steve. Craig Chester surfed the early 90s wave of the new queer cinema, starring in such breakthrough indie films as Swoon, Grief, and Frisk. He's the author of Why the Long Face, The Adventures of a Truly Independent Actor. And he's the writer, director, and star of the new gay romantic comedy, Adam and Steve. Somebody needs a drink? No, 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 I'm straight. Uh, sober. Really? Wow. I'd hate to be sober. That sucks. I don't see why sober people still get to smoke. Nicotine is such a drug. 
Yeah, but nicotine doesn't make me wander through gay bars pinching my nipples and moaning, pick me, pick me to hot guys. Adam and Steve is about these two guys who meet in 1987 when they're 21. Writer, director, actor, and author Craig Chester. And they have this sort of disastrous one-night stand. And they meet again later, 17 years later now, but they don't recognize each other because they've sort of reinvented themselves. So the movie's sort of this suspense comedy, basically, where we're waiting for Adam and Steve to figure out that they met before in the 80s. And when they do find that out, the movie's really about how do they incorporate that into their current understanding of the relationship. That's the plot, but really that's just an excuse for a lot of over-the-top, retarded set pieces. Adam and Steve also stars Craig's best friend, Parker Posey, Saturday Night Live's Chris Catan, and Broadway's Malcolm Getz, best known for his co-starring role on the TV show Caroline in the City. I'm going to ask Adam to marry me. Oh, my God! <coughs> marry him? But you guys have only been going out for like a couple months. Actually, it's almost been a year, Michael. Besides, my parents got married on the third date, and uh, they're still together. Well, you're only as monogamous as your options. I mean, your parents live in a, a, a trailer park Excuse in a field. Excuse me? Only as monogamous as their options? You know, it gets worse, Michael. I'm going to ask him to move in. Oh, my God! While acknowledging the film is first and foremost a romantic comedy, Craig asserts the characters of Adam and Steve are revolutionary in their own way. I think Adam is really sort of the gay everyman in a way, and I think that he's a character that we haven't really seen much of in films or in television because, you know, we're so inundated with images of perfection in a way and uh, of 25-year-olds and Speedos. And Adam is not really part of the gay community. He runs a bird-watching tour in Central Park, and he's got his dog and his best friend, and he doesn't really fit into the gay scene. Steve is much more part of that world, the sort of West Hollywood, Chelsea world. But Adam's very much like the sort of the gay underdog. And a lot of gay men watch this film and have come up to me. It's like, I think they've never seen these images before in a way. And I think the movie is very subtly revolutionary because we're showing these two 40-year-old guys, basically, who are trying to have a relationship. And it's not it's not self-consciously political, but, you know, I've been all over the country doing Q&As with the film, and when I stand on the stage, I look out into the audience, and 99% of the people in the theater do not look like underwear models. Most gay men look like normal guys, and I think this film is really radical in a way because we're just running two normal guys in a relationship. The recent spate of gay-themed films means a certain question has been asked, of half the straight actors in Hollywood. I didn't want Craig Chester to feel he was left out just because he was gay, so I had to ask. Was it difficult kissing a man? <laughs> it was really hard to do the love scenes with Malcolm. I had to practice on my hand first, and I was kissing my hand, and, cause, uh, and I had to drink a six-pack before I could get to do that, because it's just so gross, you know, two guys kissing. and I would think the razor burn, because that's what Yeah, I that wasn't used to that, you know, because usually the trannies that I make out with are pretty clean-shaven. Yeah, Malcolm and I are both openly gay actors, and we're playing two gay guys in relationship. We kind of did our research, and that's never really happened before. And it's sort of sad to me in a way that we're this far along into the gay film movement that we've never had a gay love story with two openly gay actors playing boyfriends. And a lot of people have sort of seized on that, and I think that a lot of people like that, and a lot of people don't. I don't know. I think there's this fascination with straight men that gay men have, and especially gay men in the media have, where we all want the straight guy's approval, I think, on some psychological level. Like, we were never picked for the team, most of us, when we were growing up, and now, you know, when we have, like, straight actors playing gay, it's almost like they're picking us for the team, and I think that has a lot of power psychologically for a lot of gay men, and I've done a lot of movies where I 
had to do love scenes with a straight actor playing gay and it's not fun and since I was directing the movie I didn't really want to have to deal with that I wanted to have an actor who could bring his life experience to the role it was a romantic comedy so Malcolm and I sat around we talked about boyfriends we've had we put stuff into the script of moments that we'd had in real life as gay men and and I think that the movie is very authentic that way. And the thing that people have commented on about the film and about our relationship on screen is that there's all this kissing in the movie that's not like a big deal. It's sort of the everydayness of that relationship that I think is very unique. And we haven't really seen much of that before. Just like coming in the door and being like, hey, good looking, walking over, kissing your boyfriend, going about your day. And that kind of subtle incorporation of that into these men's daily lives is what I think is sort of revolutionary about the film. According to Craig Chester, since the film's completion, there has been one big surprise. Man, it was hard to get the gay press behind us. The thing is, is that you're never a hero at home. Everyone is still way more interested in a straight actor playing gay than two out actors playing gay. I guess Malcolm and I thought we would be more sort of celebrated for that. And we haven't really been. I think the gay community and the gay media is way more interested in mainstream acceptance and in Hollywood approval and you know and even like the GLAAD awards Charlize Theron and you know liking us and giving awards to straight people and I think that if the gay community was more supportive of their own I would be like everybody come out of the closet but it's so hard because you don't really get a lot of support from mainstream Hollywood and also from the gay press and the gay community you really have to beg for whatever scraps you're given and and it didn't used to be that way when when I started out you know, it wasn't that way. And now it's really like everyone is so obsessed with getting the approval of mainstream Hollywood. And I really don't think that until I make a film in the Hollywood studio system that I'll actually get on the cover of The Advocate. When his first film, Swoon, was released in 1992, the list of out gay actors read Craig Chester. While he doesn't regret being out, he doesn't believe the choice is any easier in today's Hollywood. I got into theater because I was like, that's where the gays are. When I was in high school, I mean, that's where you go. And then I moved to New York and got into the business. I was like, oh, wow, like, it's actually not okay to be gay and a lot of this. But, you know, for me, it was always like, I've always been out. And my first film, Swoon, was, you know, I was 25. And the first wave of queer cinema really came out of AIDS activism. Like, all those films were fueled by that kind of rage and those politics because a lot of those filmmakers were involved in ACT UP and Queer Nation and and I was also, as well, like I was very much a part of that sort of, I marched on Washington and I did all this stuff. And so whenever I started working in films, it it wasn't, it didn't make sense to me coming from this sort of AIDS activist background that I should suddenly, you know, start dating a girl and pretending like I'm straight. And so a lot of that generation, like, you know, we were very political and and that's really why I'm out, because it was, it was completely tied into that time and place. But, you know, it, it's, I think it's actually a little bit worse now for an openly gay actor. I have young gay friends who want to be actors who just feel like it's just, you know, there's a lot more. I think back then there was some hope, you know, that maybe we could really come out, you know, and it would work. And and then it sort of happened a little bit with Ellen, and then no one else came out. And I think it sort of feels like this moment that passed in a way. This has been a conversation with writer, director, actor, and author Craig Chester. Adam and Steve is from TLA Releasing and Funny Boy Films. More info can be found at adamandstevemovie.com, craigchester.com, and as always, prideonscreen.com. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. If your heart always did what a normal heart should do, if you always play a part instead of being... Thank you.
Craig Chester's 2005 film Romance with Malcolm Getz, Chris Kattan, and Parker Posey is available to stream on Amazon Prime and the Tubi app. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this quick break. Robert Indiana's Love, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Born Robert Clark in 1928 in a small Indiana town, he became a leader in New York City's pop art movement in the 1960s. He joined the Army Air Corps and took advantage of the GI Bill, attending the Art Institute of Chicago and the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. After moving to New York City in 1954 and changing his surname to his state of birth, Robert Indiana became part of the pop art scene. In 1961, the Museum of Modern Art acquired his painting, The American Dream, and his career took off. He even exhibited works together with Andy Warhol, but it would be Robert Indiana's love image that catapulted him to new heights. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRAR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Kevin Clay. Hi, I'm David Sedaris, advising you to listen to the longest-running homosexual radio program in Southern California. I am, are you? Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Linda Birch was once a regular on IMRU for years, and one of her favorite stories she shared was about love. Let me start with you telling me your name. Mary Adair. And you are? Grace Hengst. 
And how long have you been together? 27 years. Super Bowl Sunday, actually, is our anniversary. Super Bowl Sunday, is that how you met? Yeah, well, no, no. No, it's just <laughs> the day we call our... Well, when do you say the first day that is your, the day you married? I mean, we didn't have marriage then, so... It's like, do you, do you make it the first day you met, the first date you had, or the first time you went to bed together? You know, what is the anniversary? Yeah. <laughs> Do you feel married? Are you married? Oh, we are. Yeah, you are. Definitely. When, did you get married? I mean, did you get married during the the period in California? You just, or do you just feel married? Well, we didn't get married, and we're not domestic partners either. But we feel married. Do you remember how how long did your romantic love last? Well, I still feel like it's lasting. I mean, it certainly goes up and down. You have waves, you know. But we always seem to come back to really loving each other. But if you're talking about that kind of intense romantic love, I think probably for like a year or two. And that's sort of when it started to go like this. But we had um, some interesting times during the early part of our life together because both of us had realized that we had been abused as children and that we were kind of acting out that kind of relationship with each other that we had as children. So we both went into therapy for uh, survivors of abuse. And when we, and that's how we sort of learned to deal with each other in a better way. What were the issues that you had to kind of work out? Power. Power. <laughs> Power. Power mm -hmm. is a key component of relationships. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what kind of negotiations did you come up with? Well, when we were in therapy together, we it was like I couldn't have time away from her. If I had time away from her, it was somewhat insulting to her. Like, why wouldn't I want to be with her 24-7? And I was like, no, I've never wanted that. What we had to actually do was go to a therapist who pulled out a calendar, and we had to mark the day that could be my day. Okay, so I marked Friday. And she goes, what do you mean a Friday? Why don't you make it on a Monday? I said, well, there's nothing to do on Mondays with my friends. I'd rather go out on Friday. So it was sort of that whole thing we had to get through with each other. And now we really don't have that at all anymore. That was that issue was resolved, I think. But it, it was hard to get through that because my idea of love is just you spend all your time together. But, of course, that's I didn't really want that either. I mean, I found out. We call that lesbian bed death. <laughs> <laughs> Cook, you know, connected to the hip 24-7, not my idea of a relationship. What first attracted you to Grace? It's so, I mean, people say this, and I've always thought it was ridiculous, and that it wasn't true. But I looked at her, and I said, she's the one. I met her on April Fool's Day at a party, a friend's birthday party. And I just looked at her, and I said, she's not normally my type, but she's the one I like. And I got to have her. I don't know what I'm going to do. But, you know, she was in a relationship, so I had to leave it alone. And Grace, what attracted you to Mary? I'm not sure exactly. I didn't realize how attracted that I was from that first experience. But then her name came up as somebody who was at a theater that we had potential of going to that night. And my heart started thumping. And I thought, oh, my God, what is this? I mean, like this other relationship, I really thought I was committed to that. But, I mean, it was her... Energy, the way we talk together, her feminism actually was very attractive to me. She was so open and out, and I, I wasn't. I thought she was uh, really beautiful, still do, and all, all kinds of things. I just became, my love just totally went over to Mary, even though I was still in love with her in a way. So after about two years, we, um, I, I just my love kind of went to Mary. And even though I still loved the other woman, I just 
I mean, I was the attractive love we had was just so incredible, and it stayed so incredible for a long time. So, yeah, I was called the um, the what do you call it? The house uh, homewrecker. The homewrecker, yes. You're oh the, yeah, I was the Angelina Jolie. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's how my parents treated her, like really? a homewrecker. Really? Yeah. They, they were mad at her for a while. Yes, I think so. Even though we never discussed my sexuality or anything like that, um, there Wisconsin. Then they kind of treated her like that. How do you feel about where we are now as a society as we're moving closer and closer towards marriage equality? I think that's wonderful. I really think that's wonderful, marriage equality. Of course, you know, it's just a piece of paper, so we really don't believe in marriage. But I think we'll do a domestic partnership. We'll have to explore that a little bit and, and see if there might be advantages. If there aren't any real legal advantages, we won't do that. What if there are legal benefits? Oh, probably. Yeah, but I have to get divorced. You're, di- you're married? <laughs> yes, I'm married to my best friend who has HIV. And when uh, HIV first kind of raised its ugly head, we found out that he was positive in 1989. And we thought, well, there's no treatment. He'll be dead in two years. And uh, he had no insurance. So basically, I'm, we got married so that if he became, or when he became very ill, he could get into a nice hospital as opposed to a county facility. So we've been married, what, 23 years or something? Yeah, and married. we're getting divorced. We're in the middle of getting divorced so that Grace and I can either get married or be domestic partners. That's an amazing story on so many levels, not just about the giving and sharing, but an indictment of our government failure to take care of people without health insurance. Right. Yeah, right. But I just, I love what we've also been able to do medically to at least push back against this virus, that he right. is surviving. How is his health today? Is he still? It's fabulous. Doing- he is, like, he, he's doing incredibly well. And, uh... I mean, his counts uh, are basically normal, and uh, but he has to stay on his medication. Let's talk a little bit more about your your love story. When you went mm-hmm. from the deep magical, you know, a tra- mm. magical, you know, because actually that that is a magical moment of is. first love is the, yeah. you know the first. And then you go through the power struggles, and then to the mature. Let, let's talk a little bit about a little bit more about the power struggle period. How long did the power struggle period last? I would say it still comes up every yeah, now and again. I would too. You know? <laughs> But we were. It's funny, the, the spats, but you can also resolve them so quickly. Mm-hmm. It didn't used to be that way, but now we yeah. can. Oh, yeah. It used to take maybe days sometimes. Yeah. What, that were, was, that what, was, yeah. what was ahead. your arguing style like? Well, I would express myself, and she wouldn't say anything, which made me matter. <laughs> My voice would go up. <laughs> so it's yes. that kind of thing. And for me, it would be silence because I, I guess I was afraid to say something that wasn't good. I mean, you shouldn't, if you don't have anything good to say, you shouldn't say anything. <laughs> took me a long time to uh, to figure out that I could say crappy things, too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's talk a little bit more about the mature love period, when you knew that this was, wasn't just someone that you, you were really attracted to or that you really liked, but someone that you knew that you wanted to spend the rest of your life with. I knew that really right away. Yeah, I knew that, too. From the beginning. From the beginning, yeah. And what do you think of when you wake up in the morning next to each other? How nice it is to be next to her. Yeah, cuddle and say hello and get coffee and just, you know, be relaxed. Just be Mm -hmm. so comfortable with someone and yet still have feelings of attraction and all that. Because, you know, those feelings do calm down over time. But it was just like today I was looking at her and I just thought, she's so beautiful. And today, what would you say about love? Oh, we're very much in love. You are listening to 
a very special Valentine's Day feature on IMRU with stories of true love. Coming up next, the story of Joan and Gary, followed by the story of Jaime and Gary. How did you meet Joan? I was working at the Gay Community Center in Long Beach as a newsletter editor, and Joan's son was a bookkeeper there, and she was there as a program manager in their aid services. And so that's how we first met, and I was in a relationship with a young man who later died of AIDS, but he was assigned to Joan coincidentally when she was working in their aid services. However, she never met him because he was too sick by the time he signed up. And at the same time, I also did conflict resolution work. And she happened to know someone later on who was doing research, I think, on conflict resolution. So we first met in 89 or so, but we didn't get really reunited until about late 98 when she referred me to this friend and I called her up to thank her and we went out to lunch or dinner, I think. And that's when we actually got together. When you first met Gary and you knew that his partner before had been male, did you just assume that he was gay or or how did it come out that he was bisexual? No, I, I just assumed he was gay, and I really didn't know that he was bisexual until after we'd started dating. And after we started dating uh, for, it had been a couple of months, he took me to one of the parties of the bi group that he was involved with, and that was okay. <laughs> you know, I, I had no problems with it, and I met some of his friends, and it was cool. I did at first worry, you know, if if you're going out with a straight man, you worry about other women. With me, it was, should I also worry about other men and and women? And (laughs) it's kind of like a double whammy. (laughs) So how long did it take for you from the time when you realized you had these romantic feelings for Gary that you actually progressed towards having a committed relationship to marriage? Well, he moved in with me (laughs) only because he got a job that was, what, two miles away from where I lived. I was living in L.A. at the time, and uh, he was living in Long Beach, so he asked if he could move into my apartment, and I said, okay. And like I said, it was a very gradual thing. I got to know him really well, and he was always very considerate and kind and really great with my grandchildren and the family and he put the toilet seat down he would wash dishes so it grew into something deeper and and then he took me to meet his mother which was very underhanded because his mother is the sweetest (laughs) kindest dearest person I have ever met and I fell in love with her immediately and I thought oh I've got to keep her and for me I was not thinking do I want to spend my life with this woman? I'm very proud of the fact that I've never really looked at people in terms of gender or gender stereotypes, just in terms of an organic wholeness. So that made it actually pretty easy for me to make a decision like that. I was not looking at her as a woman or as a man, but as a person. So Valentine's Day, how many years will you have been together? Twelve. And um, so a year plus before that, 
So that would be 13, but we've actually known each other <laughs> since 87, late 87. So 87, 97, 2007, so 22 years mm-hmm. or so. Yeah. I'm Gary Rhodes. And I'm Jaime Giaga. And how long have you been together? 28 years. How did you meet? Well, actually, he asked me for a cigarette at a bar. And it was love at first sight? Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. I, we dated for several weeks, and then we eventually moved in together after uh, many, many long discussions on the ground rules. And, and once we agreed on all that, we moved in together. I had a house, and so he moved in with me and the Castro in San Francisco. We met Bad at Badlands, <laughs> and I lived Bad right lands. off of Castro up on Collingwood in, an, in a house. So when was was it? What, did you meet in the eighties or eighty two? Eighty two. Eighty two. And what was the Castro like then? Wild. It was, uh, I guess, eighty two, early eighties. That's when lots of guys in in our generation were coming out. The Castro was dubbed a gay mecca, so everybody was coming out there. And so I guess San Francisco was the place to celebrate our coming out and being gay. I was moving to San Francisco. I was going to start my schooling at Stanford. I was going for a physician assistant certificate program at Stanford Medical U- Medical Center, and I was looking for a place to live in San Francisco. He happened to <laughs> have a room. was with a place. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so. Oh, 28 years. That is a wonderful amount of time. What is it about your relationship that has made it work? I think the most important thing is that we let each other be who we are and do what, you know, go do the things we want to do um, and kept our individuality. It's really important and kept our freedoms. Um, as For example, he goes to the Y in the gym every day. What was it like for you when you first met? Well, of course, when we first met, it's all hot, hot, hot. And uh, of course, that wears off eventually. And it's more it's more uh, just being there for each other and supporting each other in crisis and just everyday support and just being there, like just like holding hands while you're sleeping or something can be that innocent. You know what I'm saying? That's that's really important. And we travel we enjoy at least traveling. a couple trips a year someplace. Where do you go? Well, this year we're going to New Orleans, and then we're going on a cruise to Mexico. And, we, you know, we usually go down to Puerto Vallarta once a year. Trips to Vegas is always... <laughs> My trips, a couple of trips to Vegas every year. That's why it's a good thing it's far away or I would be in trouble. And, I mean, I'm the kind of person, you know, if there's a way to get some money, I'll figure out a way to get it somewhere from somewhere. It sounds like you're a wonderful match. It's a wonderful match. <laughs> yeah, it's perfect. Thank you so much for stopping in and sharing your love story with us on IMRU on Valentine's Day. Thank you for having us. L is for the way you look at me. O is for the only one I see. V is very, very extraordinary. E is even more than anyone that you adore can love. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this quick break. Love is everywhere, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. The word love, with L-O stacked on top of V-E, is a worldwide iconic image in paintings, graphic designs, and sculpture. Created by openly gay American artist Robert Indiana in the 1960s, it has been reproduced in many formats and in a variety of colors. First appearing in English, it's now seen in Spanish, Chinese, Italian, and Hebrew. The TV series Bridget Loves Bernie included the love sculpture in New York City at 6th Avenue in its opening credits. The novel Love Story alluded to the design on its original cover. In 1973, the U.S. Postal Service issued its first Valentine's Day stamp incorporating the love icon. And in 2011, a special Valentine's Day edition of Google's logo was based on the same image. 
The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Mark Paul, in North Laurel, Maryland. Hi, I'm Leslie Jordan, and you're listening to I Am Are You. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you're listening to I Am Are You Radio Magazine. The next story is about overcoming obstacles to love. My name is Nayef Harabit. My name is Betu Alami. Nayef, tell me about your life in Iraq. I was just a normal gay guy, and I cannot be myself there. And I, I was studying in a fine art college. And after the war, I just work with the U.S. Marines as translator. And what were you up to? After the war, he joined to the military and working with the collection forces. What was Iraq like for you when you were growing up? When did you know you were gay? I always know I'm gay, but it's not easy to be myself. With Iraq, with liturgies and the culture, it's too difficult to be yourself because you get killed or they torture you to make you example for the others. So I cannot be myself there. Anyone can judge you and kill you just to be a gay there, either your own family. It's only hiding. That's the only way, is just to be acting in front of people, just to be the way how they want you to be. Mm-hmm. But you cannot be yourself if you're a gay guy. And how did you become a translator? After the war, and I just was graduate from my college, and um, I was very interesting to learn more about the English, and I saw the troops was doing a foot patrol back in my area in the south and I just asked them if I could work with them and they test my English which is I learned from the English movies and the music and they said oh you know what you could help us to training the new police which is this was a very basic in the beginning as translator and after that I start learning more and more and in 2003 when the war started everyone was happy with Americans especially in the south the dangers come after the militias coming out and the militias and the religious people sin for people and anyone working with americans is traitor those come here to get our home from us all that poison thinking is what make us a target and make me as translator a target from a lot of bad people how did you two meet he working translator i'm soldier we know speak english we don't understand American military, he translators, talk with me and with everyone in Iraq military. I see him every day. Sometimes we need help. We talk to him. Excuse me, we need help. He translators with Marines military. The first time I saw him, I was sitting and it was very warm in the afternoon and he was coming out of the shower. And that's when the first time I saw him and, and I said, oh my God, that guy is really hot. But I was never think he have a feeling to know me more like how I did. So I was just tried to be as a normal as, as me and translate and doing my job. But one day we go mission together for clearing the general hospital from the terrorists. And in that mission, we stay in the home together like it was Iraqi battalion, which is his battalion, an American team, which is the MIT team and the Marines and some also some bullies. And we sit in that home 15 days. So we was doing our patrols in a day. And at night we were sitting together and he started inviting me for dinner, lunches, and we start talking and talking till we know each other more. 
And after that, we just find out we in love together. Yeah, there we stay together, we eat together. And we start knowing each other, we start talking together, and that's how, how it started. Did you think he may be gay? I feel like inside, the same we, we call gaydar, but not easy. I talk to him, I like to you, or I love you, or I take you gay or not gay. This is not easy there. But after three days, my inside so strong, I did call to him and I talked to him, I love you. But I don't know what's going on after, he may be not gay. This is big problems, not easy. It's dangerous. But yeah, of course. My job in military, he and translator with Marines is not easy too. In government, family, friends, Everyone, it's not easy, but I told him, I love you. He don't give me answer, just kiss me. He go back to room. After me two days, I'm not eat anything. I think I forget and kiss. Uh, really beautiful feeling, it's amazing, sometimes weird, it's crazy. He is my life. Inside, this is my dream. Really, I left to him after that, maybe month, but I don't tell him I love you or I like you. But this time we working together, same place. Yeah, after three days, I, I told so him. So do you want me to translate some? Or no, you, I you get it all? Okay. Yeah, okay. but what about you, so, um, your reaction? So my reaction was, I know I was sure if he's gay or not. And, and after this kiss, I just know he want me. I mean, we could be together because he have the same feeling. And so that means he's gay, you know. And he w he went to vacation after that. And after the vacation, we just met and have more kisses, you know. And our relationship stopped. But at the same time, it was very dangerous. It was an American base. And it's difficult for us to be together. It's difficult from the Iraqi soldiers, difficult from the American side. We cannot just be ourselves there. So we started going different cities to meet at the hotel there and keep meeting each other till I get out to come to the United States. Tell me about leaving. How did that come about? There is a program to help translators because their life in danger to help them to go and live in the United States, give them asylum. And I have friends, they already did that, so I applied for my asylum, and I got it after 11 months. And that's after decision, me and him, we take it as we need, because we heard about life outside Iraq and the serious queer as folk. We saw there, there is a gay community, they can be themselves, because the way how we was living in Iraq, we not have a lot of touch with the other words. We thought it's the same things. No one would accept in any gay. But after I saw that series with the five seasons, which is my favorite till now, and I said, oh, my God, we could be ourselves. We could married. We could adapt kids. We could do a lot. That's the life I want. That's the life he's want. I just fly, and I just thought it's easy for him to come behind me. And uh, they sent him visa. I told him my boyfriend, and he could come and live together. But it's not what's easy about how I thought. If you'd known it would have been this difficult, would you have reservations about leaving? Yes, because there's no life for us there waiting. Is Either we and me and him get married and just get separate, or maybe still meeting each other in a hiding place like a lot of other friends, they're still doing it. Or they find about the relationship and they kill us. 
So there is no future for us there, and that's the only way we could do it. Talk about the incredible journey he had to go through to get over here. It's take us five years of process. When we apply with the UN, we know there's a lot of other people, but we thought they're going to take care of him just to be as a gay. But we surprised in his first interview, he said they not really care about gays here. They care about families more, which make us really sad and disappointed. This is not what we thought. You make it to the U.S., and he only makes it as far as Lebanon. Then what? Because his background, because he'd been in military, they start just to reject him because they think he says he was a witness for torching. And in the same time, he was uh, legally there. So he cannot go anywhere because a lot of checkpoints in that country. And also, in any time he cut, he will send back to Iraq, which is they already know about our relationship and they will kill him. This is Steve Pride speaking with Batu Alami and Naref Heredid. Naref, a translator for the U.S. military, and Batu, a soldier in the Iraqi army, faced persecution and possibly death if they stayed in their homeland. But immigration was a rough road, and after obtaining a visa, Naref was forced to leave his love behind, settling in Seattle, with the determination to one day reunite with Batu in a place where they could express their love freely and without fear. What was it like leaving him behind? I come here and it's, it's shock. It's beautiful. It's very gay-friendly. They have a very good LGBT community there. It makes me sad because I'm not here with him. I'm here without him, and he's still there with all that situation. And I always feel I'm guilty. I'm the one put him in this, which is make me feel not happy. And any time I meet friends, or they say, let's go to the party. They enjoy it, I'm not enjoying it, because I'm thinking about him. He should be with me. We should be enjoying it together, not just me. And that was make me sad, which make me calling him, taking him picture every time. I feel that bad, and I feel like we decide to go out together, but he's staying in this cage back in that country, and I'm here free, so... We just communicate together all that time by Skype, night, days, you know, watching each other, how we sleep, eating together by putting the plates in front of the camera. I eat breakfast, he eat dinner. And we keep in touch all that time, which is make our relationship more stronger. He know everything's about where I go, what's about my life and everything's, and I know everything's about him and how he's feeling, you know. So that will help us to have a hope we can get together. But too, what was it like for you? And take your time. Speak Arabic, and I can translate. Okay. 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 Most difficult. We have different times. We have there is a night there, and there is a sun here, which is make us feel we more farther away from each other. But he said by the sky, by we having a touch together every single day, every moment we free, that will make us have a hope. We will make that time going together, and we're going to be in the same time. We now have to live separate by different times. They already say no, and we was very hopeless. I almost decided to go live in Lebanon with him, and whatever is happening to us will be heaven because there is no hope anymore for him to come. There is a hope for us to get together, 
but not here in the United States. So I just decided to go there. So how did Batu get out? How Batu get out is we heard about Canadian programs called Five Sponsor, which is if you know five Canadian people, they could sponsor you and help in you and take care of you so you could get to immigrate to go living in it. So we go there and we met the Rainbow Refugee uh, Organization and the United Church of Canada, and they work with it, and they was very nice people, and they do his paperwork. And after six months, the Canadian Embassy in Lebanon, they ask him about his first interview, and he get accepted in his first interview. They not focus his military life, they focus about his gay life, which is make it much easier for him to understand what he go through. Well, tell me about the meeting, the reunion. The big moment is in Canada and Vancouver when he get out of there. So we know he's coming. I went from Seattle to Vancouver Airport in Canada and I was waiting and I was like, is that really happening? Is that really he's coming? We're going to have the same time. We're going to hold each other. We're going to go to places together. You know, we're going to eat together. We're going to have to use the Skype because I'm really tired from Skype. It's been five years just Skyping every single time. All my breaks, my lunches at work, wherever I go, I have to hold the Skype. And I'm tired from it. I need to hold him, not hold the Skype. So when I saw him, he was wearing a T-shirt with a picture of me and him. And he just came and I called him, hey, baby, you know. And I believe it. He's here. And for him, he's take him like at least a week to feel like he's really here. And I keep visit him every single week for a year and a half. Every single week. Uh, we get married in Vancouver first, just for the paperwork. And I get my citizen. And in that time, it's much easier for me to make him come and live with me in the United States. And we do our paperwork, and they ask us for an interview back in Montreal. So we fly all that way to Montreal, and it was 27 below the zero. And in 10 minutes, she said, after she asked me a question, ask us both, and she tell him, you've been accepted to the United States. Just 10 minutes. We've been waiting five years to hear that. I want to scream. But I could because it's a lot of people and I'm in the embassy. So he said, just wait till we get out. And I just get crazy and scream and, and keep screaming. And he take me to the room and I keep screaming and screaming because this is what I've been waiting all that years. You know, it's finally heaven. Finally is heaven. Finally, we he's going to come and live with me with the place we would like to live in. And that's how is it. That's how it might feel. And it was March 6, 2015. And I come in the morning and we get the passport with the visa and we come and we surprise all our friends with bed too. And after that, we get married in August. Eight. August 8th. What's your life like here in the States now? Oh, my God. It's much, much better. I feel I'm the most happy in person now. I can focus in my art. I can focus in my work, which is I already get new position as a manager in home decor and when I see Betu working and going to school and excited and people like us about how we RP that's the place called home we love Iraq we never want to leave Iraq but we cannot live with people they don't want us to live there who want to kill us and make us example and torture us those people still there they're not lucky they haven't all that, and they still having it, and we have to do something for it. Our home here in, in the United States, we now help eight or nine people. We help them. 
we need help more, more, more so people. So we're working with, uh, we make a group, it's called New Life. We make it since we was in Canada. The group is between Canadian Americans and a lot of Iraqis. We already sponsor eight LGBT people from Iraq. We help them to find a job, get their stand, tell them about the culture, teach them how they use the bus, you know. So our message is that's the kind of help. It should be money. Just do whatever you could to help those people to get in their feet and help them to know more about this community here. Because I have a lot of friends, they come here and they shock. It's different culture. It's not easy for you to live all of your life back there. And you come here and you, yes, it's better, it's free. You could be yourself, but it's still different. It's still not home. It's still not the language. And most of those people, they're not speaking English. So we need the people here helping them to get in their feet. Same for me, before I'm not speaking English, never. Now it's fine, not 100%, but I understand something. Now my life here, my home here, I love him. He my family. What is it about him that you love the most? Everything. This has been a conversation with Nayef Harabin and Batu Alami. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Nayef and Batu are now married and living in Seattle. The documentary Out of Iraq is available to stream on World of Wonder at wowpresentsplus.com. Okay, my IMRU Valentines, that's it for tonight. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. And if you are interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email public at prideonscreen.com. And a reminder, we're a global podcast, as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. And you can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. And if you just can't get enough of me, you can catch up with me on Facebook and Instagram at Michael Taylor Gray, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-T-A-Y-L-O-R-G-R-A-Y, and on Twitter at M-I-K-E-L-T-A-Y-L-O-R-G-R-A-Y. So long, and thanks for listening. Let's speak the words to the parents that will preach to their kids that are freaks. Just because they're different. Short, see right through you when we're living fear. Brings me to 